Hello there, and welcome to Prairie Design Lab, coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm your host, producer, and writer, Terry McLeod. Today's episode, number four of season two, is called simply Cornelia, after Cornelia Hahn Oberlander of Vancouver, one of the greatest landscape architects of the modern era. Her work is adored across Canada and around the world and has won her many awards. An indication of her success can be found in the Cornelia Hahn Oberlander International Landscape Architect Prize, the leading such prize in the world, which was established in 2019 with a biannual prize of $100,000 US. Cornelia passed away in May of 2021, just a month short of her 100th birthday. In November, an exhibit showcasing her work will come to the Architecture Gallery at the University of Manitoba. And today, we celebrate Cornelia. To do that, I'm joined by the co-curators of the exhibit. They are Amory Calvelli, adjunct curator of the Poole Centre of Design at the Art Gallery of Alberta, and Dr. Hilary Letwin, the assistant curator at the West Vancouver Art Museum. Hello, Amory Calvelli. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. Hello, Terry. Nice to be here. And hello, Dr. Hilary Letwin. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. Hi, thank you. Welcome. I do have to begin by asking the name of the show that's coming to the University of Manitoba Faculty of Architecture. How do you pronounce it? We would probably pronounce it genius loci. Genius loci. And what does that mean? So we took the title from some notes uh, that Cornelia had taken herself that we found in our research. And in Latin, it means the protective spirit of place. And to us, it seemed to be a, a really good way to explain uh, Cornelia's relationship to landscape and to many of her projects. Um, it also can mean kind of the contextual city or the genetic footprint of a place. So how the city is maybe lived or experienced as part of it. That sounds perfect for Cornelia, doesn't it? Because she's so much about those kinds of things. But I want to ask each of you, what was your first discovery of the work of Cornelia Hahn Oberlander. Amory, what was that for you? Well, I had, through visiting Vancouver and seeing Robson Square quite a while ago, maybe two decades ago before I'd moved to Canada actually, was my first experience. I had been working on some research for a project around Lawrence Halprin, 2008 and 2009, and kind of came across more of her work. And then when I relocated to Canada, I was very excited about the kinds of projects that kept coming, you know, the National Gallery, the Canadian Pavilion, uh, at the Venice Biennial, uh, so the, the New York Times building. So there were quite a few projects that I started falling in love with. And Hillary, for you, what was your discovery of Cornelia? So I moved to the Vancouver area in 2011 from London in the UK, and I was new to the city. My husband had grown up in Vancouver, but I, I had only visited a few times. And I had a, a young baby at the time, and I was doing a lot of walking around the city, getting to know um, my new home. I remember like Amory Robson Square in particular and being really intrigued by the complex. And then as I got to know Vancouver better and, and started to go to places like the Museum of Anthropology, uh, Cornelia's name kept coming up. And uh, I started to recognize just what an impact she'd had on the urban landscape in which I was living. And I became increasingly more intrigued by her 
career and also by her life, which was extraordinary. Well, she has quite a, a personal tale, having had to leave Germany what uh, in November of 1938, when she was just 17. It was the Nazis that drove her family out of the country, right? That's correct. A few years before, her father had passed away in an avalanche while skiing. And so it was her mother and her two sisters who fled the Nazis. And they had, by all accounts, a very dramatic exit from Germany. They went to London and then they found themselves in the States. Her mom was a very well-known horticulturalist in Germany. And she, uh, in fact, ended up buying a 200-acre farm in the Northeast uh, and started to... In the Northeast um, of the U.S., yeah. In the Northeast yes. of the U.S. And, and started to farm that and Cornelia helped her with that. And, and then not straying too far from home, ended up going to Smith College in Massachusetts for her undergraduate degree. Which was a pretty special experience for her, right? From my conversations with her, she valued that education extremely highly. It was one of the ways actually in which we sort of personally connected because I went to Bryn Mawr College in, in Philadelphia for my undergraduate degree. And Smith and Bryn Mawr are one of the two of the seven sister colleges in the States. And they're all women's colleges. And there's, uh, of course, a significant emphasis placed on women's education. When I first met her and we were starting to talk about the exhibition, she was incredibly excited that I too had gone to a seven sister college. And that for her was a very formative experience. And what about the experience at Harvard? There weren't very many women admitted to Harvard's landscape architecture program, right, Amory? Um, she was one of the first to graduate from the Graduate School of Design program. It was actually an opening that uh, was made possible because of the war and uh, drafting. People were drafted into the war. There was uh, space for women <laughs> to go to university. <laughs> And what about her experience at Harvard? She graduated way back in 1947, but she was influenced while there by some pretty terrific people. Walter Grofius, did he have a role at Harvard at that time? Yes, he did. He was the director, yeah. And was she influenced by his Bauhaus modernism? Yes, I think absolutely she was influenced by the Bauhaus style, by the international style. We actually found evidence through some oral histories that were done by the um, Cultural Landscape Foundation. She claimed that her father had met Gropius in Germany um, and that they had had some connection, oddly enough, about bricks. When she went to Harvard, there is definitely uh, evidence that she was influenced by Gropius and also by a number of her other professors that she worked with there. And, and we can't forget also the influence from her fellow students as well. And, and Harvard is where she met her future husband, Peter Oberlander. Uh, very poetically, they met on a student's trip to Walden Pond. No, and, really? <laughs> <laughs> there's a charming story in a biography about Peter um, that tells us about how they were introduced. Uh, Cornelia had made a German um, baked good. And Peter being from Austria, tasted the baked good and looked around and said, who made this? It reminds me of my childhood. So they, they met on that trip and, and they both recall that meeting very fondly. He became one of Canada's preeminent urban planners um, and had a significant influence, not just on Vancouver where they lived, but also much, much more widely because he was involved in the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Association at times. He was friends with Pierre Trudeau 
Uh, and he himself actually had a really fascinating escape from uh, the Nazis. According to one of his biographers, he and his family, when the Nazis invaded Austria, uh, he had been on a skiing trip with, with his classmates. And halfway through the skiing trip, the Jewish students were separated out from the non-Jewish students. And the non-Jewish students were able to continue skiing. And the Jewish students had to stay in their cabin. And when they got back to Vienna, the non-Jewish students were driven home. And the Jewish students, from what I remember, were made to walk. Uh, and he got home and he said to his father, who was a very prominent lawyer in Vienna, I think he was in his early teens, sort of 12, 13. And I remember reading that he had tried to urge his father to, to take action. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what ended up happening was the Nazis imprisoned his father for a period of time. Uh, and it was only because they had some family friends, non-Jewish family friends who were able to get the exit visas for them to leave Austria. They too went to the UK and they settled with some family on the South Coast. And then Churchill enacted a, a sweeping pickup of all new German immigrants, fearing that they would be the fifth column, the invaders from within. So all men within a certain age who were German and Austrian were taken to internment camps. Um, so uh, Peter's parents and his younger brother uh, were spared, but he was taken to an internment camp and eventually put on a ship bound for Canada. Uh, the same ship that carried uh, true Nazis, uh, prisoners of war, they were all lumped in together. Canada had very emphatically said they did not want to take Jewish refugees. So um, the British government put them all on a boat together uh, under the guise that they were prisoners of war to, and then sent to internment camps in Canada. Uh, so he was in an internment camp for a few years. And again, it was only because um, some family friends in Montreal, at the end of the war, the plan was to send Peter and a number of other people back to the UK. So this Montreal family interceded and said, look, this is ridiculous. He's already here in Canada. Um, and then they were also instrumental in getting him into the McGill program for architecture. So it was an incredibly dramatic uh, experience for him. And it was one uh, that is uh, markedly different from that of Cornelia over the course of the war. But it was also while in these Canadian internment camps that he met a number of other people who would go on to become Canada's new generation of architects and designers. After McGill, he then went on to Harvard. And the rest, they say, is history. In some of my reading about Cornelia, I read that Frederick Law Olmsted of Central Park Design was one of her heroes. Is that true, Amory? I think it was definitely someone that was in her class and studying, as well as Lawrence Halprin, the landscape architect. And so both of them were at school at the same time and sharing the ideas of burgeoning modernism in the U.S. It was really a breakthrough period for um, U.S. development of modernism. Olmsted's firm was a significant part of the design of Winnipeg's Assiniboine Park. Some of his employees were involved here in Winnipeg, as they did with, with Central Park as well in New York City. Mm -hmm. And also Mont Royal, Park Mont Royal in uh, Mon Montreal is also Olmsted design. And the Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. That's right. They got around. When 
she and Peter Oberlander arrived in Vancouver, what, in 1953, she quickly began to do landscape architecture work. What can you tell us about what she did early on in the 50s? In the 50s, she had uh, moved to Philadelphia to serve as a community planner for the Citizens Council on on City Planning. And this was a new development uh, where they were starting to engage with citizens as they developed city planning. And so she was involved with community meetings, community engagement, uh, research about communities, and figuring out how design would fit in uh, and what what should be done in terms of planning. So that was some of her early work. And I like to use that as a reference for how her future work came forward because I think she's always been grounded in the sense of um, thinking about a broader community, thinking about how design serves the immediate community. And and as we talk about genius loci and, and each spirit has, each place has a different spirit. I think she looked at it from a planning perspective. So really broadening out landscape architecture from more than just gardening, but thinking about the community, thinking about the community was the client, not necessarily just the, the paying client. So 1967 was when she uh, did the Children's Creative Center for Expo 67. And what preceded it was actually a playground in Philadelphia that was a vacant lot that was converted into a playground for a variety of ages. And really what she was doing was kind of exploring this idea of how playgrounds can adopt to different ages, Uh, you know, places for youth, places for soccer and baseball for older, um, young children, even families, if they want to play bocce or or games, there were board games as well. So that diversity was something that was very instrumental. That actually got a lot of acclaim, the 18th and Bigler uh, Park. And so then the next project was the Creative uh, Center for Play from the Expo 67. And This was a project that I want to say 300,000 visitors came to view this type of uh, park that had been built. It was a temporary park, but the idea was a vest pocket park, something that was exactly the size of a park that could be converted into a playground in any city. It's a normal size lot that could be converted. So it was kind of a demonstration park in a sense. The thing that's quite interesting about this Expo 67 park was really how she started really adapting the um, type of play. So um, really thinking about loose parts, mounds, and ways to move around and engage. So thinking about how children can connect to play in a very uh, physical, but also social and emotional way. How do, how do they work through problems? How do they think about how they navigate a rowboat in the middle of a playground, for instance? It was a little boat inside a stream. So it, it, you could rock on it. You had to kind of step in and balance. There were two things about the park that I found particularly intriguing. Over the course of the exhibition, when it was on show here in West Vancouver in the early part of 2021, um, we had a number of visitors who remember going to Montreal to see to see Expo 67. And they, they remember because they were children, they remember going to the playground. And one of them had this very memorable story about how his parents were trying to pull him into the actual pavilion where the playground was. And he was having none of it. He would not leave that playground. And his parents had to fight really hard to get him out of the space and, and into the rest of Expo. So uh, I, I found that to be really charming. Um, The other thing you'll see in the exhibition when you go is uh, we've included some correspondence around the playground. And I think it's really important to 
read it very carefully because you'll see a letter in the exhibition that we've borrowed from the Canadian Center for Architecture that's actually provided the majority of the material for the exhibition. You'll see a letter where Cornelia is addressed as Mr. Oberlander. And I think it's this wonderful reminder of the sort of uh, professional landscape in which she was working. This park was unique as well because it wasn't swings and teeter-totters, was it? It was building parts. There were loose parts that you could build a log cabin with. There was a ladder that was very, it seemed very precarious to try to get up and down on. So it really challenged your physical abilities in a sense. There's been a lot of uh, research around the evolution of playgrounds. And I think moving from the turn of the 20th century, where um, we had, you know, just the start of leisure, really. And so playgrounds really starting. And then in the 30s, maybe more natural materials By the 1980s, there was a real movement into risk and safety and really thinking about how can we create the safest kind of playground so that people don't injure themselves. By 2000, I think what's really interesting is that there started to become research about what have we done? Uh, We've started creating a place where we're so focused on safety that we actually have created a bit of risk aversion within the development of our children. And so I think what's really interesting is that Cornelia's work, the playgrounds in the exhibition actually span 60 years of work. So 1950s to 2012. And throughout her work, there was always a sense of the community, the kinds of activities that people might uh, want to be engaged in when they're playing in the playground in 2012. There's berry picking and hunting as part of the activities. So there there was always this real sense of thinking about what is it the children want to do? What is it people want to do? How do they want to engage? And that's the antithesis of really thinking that playgrounds is risk. When she was talking about playgrounds, she always used to joke that her children were the best testers of these different theories because, of course, in the the 50s and 60s, her children were young themselves. She has three children. And uh, she used to take them to, to different sites, not just to playground sites, but to all sorts of sites. And they would occupy themselves with the dirt, the piles of dirt and the piles of this and the piles of that. Tell me about her stunning approach to landscape architecture in the Northwest Territories, in in Yellowknife, particularly around the legislature there. Her research for those projects was very deep. What did she study to get it right? The legislative building in the Northwest Territories is a particularly interesting project because she was always looking to incorporate the the indigenous species, the native species of, of the landscape in which she was working. For that particular project, she devised a scheme where uh, she actually took seed samples from the land around the building site and uh, brought them back to Vancouver and propagated them in Vancouver over the course of a few years and then brought them back up to the Northwest Territories when it was time to do the landscape and, and essentially transplanted them. The reason they came to Vancouver with her is because there were no nurseries uh, that, that could be used locally to, to propagate this material. That was a really important aspect of that particular project. Um, she also employed a device that she liked to call invisible mending Uh, on that project. And and certainly you can see it in other projects that she did as well. But um, the whole purpose of of that project uh, was uh, to essentially leave the landscape exactly as it had been so that there would be minimum of damage to the landscape as a result of the building process. That project is one of which she was particularly proud. 
I remember there were maintenance workers that uh, didn't understand why it looked like nothing had been done. And, uh, they, you know, it, it created a bit of a challenge for figuring out how to maintain, you know, what is what was designed in this project. And I think that's the beauty of uh, the kind of design that she's actually done is it's so in, invisible mending, but also it's just so natural that it feels it's a part of the place. And in Yellowknife, she was dealing with permafrost and the way that the landscape was changing because that's of the right. melting of the permafrost, right? That's right. And so that was the East 3 school. Uh, the school itself was built on uh, stanchions that were uh, hooked into the permafrost, but it, they were quite high. And um, it created a lot of stairs for the school, for the children to have to go up to the school. So what she did was she used mounds to create very deep hills where they could climb up and, and enter at ground level and also uh, use what they call a shelter belt. So pruning the trees that were native to the place a year before, and then bringing, coming back the next year and planting them in and creating a pattern of the trees that responded to the wind uh, because there were intense winds in that, in that space. We haven't yet spoken about the queen of the green roof. Cornelia's work and innovation in green roof design that has had an effect all over the world. Now, she wasn't the first person to do it, but she really perfected the work on it. Tell us a bit about how she did that. Hillary and I both mentioned the Robson Square was a project that was an early uh, project for us to connect to her work. And it really was a groundbreaking piece of design. And I think just figuring out the loads for what, what, how much soil you can put on a roof but, you know, before the roof will cave in. Trees and plants usually like quite deep soil and, and there had to be sort of uh, a lightweight uh, alternative that was, that, that was come up with. And also just figuring out which kind of planting materials would work and survive on a roof. So a lot of her research continued around what kinds of materials would make good green roofs. And this was a couple of decades before. Um, I remember a landscape architect that I'd been working with in San Francisco was just starting to think about LEED certification in 2000. And so 99 and 2000, and this was a decade before that. So she was quite early on that. And which were the projects, Hillary, on which she got green roofs installed? I think that probably one of the more interesting green roof projects that we featured in our exhibition is the roof for the Vancouver Public Library. This was a project that she did in the early 80s, and she partnered with uh, Moshe Safdie and uh, Barry Downs was the local Vancouver architect who worked on the project. And the whole story behind um, that particular green roof is, is an interesting one because Moshe Safdie and Cornelia and Barry decided to enter the, essentially the design competition for the Vancouver Public Library. They put their design proposal in and it was shortlisted uh, to be one of three that was presented uh, as anonymous designs to the general public in Vancouver. In that original anonymous design, the green roof was going to be accessible to the public. And uh, in the early 80s, this was a hugely exciting prospect and overwhelmingly um, the public chose to support uh, Cornelia and, and Moshe Safdie and Barry Downs's design for that. So city council voted to proceed and they started to work on the designs. They got the bid, they started to work on the designs. Uh, and quite early on, uh, the city of Vancouver felt that making an accessible green roof was too risky. Uh, they were worried uh, about people checking books off the roof. <laughs> 
Um, they were worried about the damage that might be inflicted on books if they were left outside. So, so really silly reasons. I suspect what really happened was they probably started to talk about the expense of it. So very early on, this accessible green roof was then uh, changed so that it would be an inaccessible green roof. It still became a very important part of the project because the green roof on the Vancouver Public Library housed a water management system that meant that less than 25% of the water that was hitting the roof was getting put into the discard. 75% of that water was getting recycled throughout the building as part of the heating and cooling system. So it was a very innovative use of green roofs, one that made Cornelia's name a household one. You both mentioned uh, the significance of Robson Square in terms of exposure to the ideas and the work of, of Cornelia. She worked with architect Arthur Erickson on that project. What's so significant about Robson Square, Amory? I think Robson Square being a horizontal three-block high-rise, and so it's got probably one of the longest green roofs because it's three blocks of green roof on top of, on top of the project. It was an interesting time for Cornelia. It was one of the early projects where she was brought in. She'd been designing primarily playgrounds. This was one of the early breakthrough projects that was actually more commercial and more public. And um, so that was really exciting. But I believe it was her first time working with Arthur Erickson. And it's, uh, she continued to work with Arthur Erickson probably once a decade at least. Hillary, you mentioned invisible bending, but there are lots of turns of phrase that are connected with Cornelia Hahn over Oberlander. I'm thinking about, it's all about grading, sculpting the earth, the mantra of the five Ps, patience, persistence, politeness, professionalism, and passion, the wilding principle, landscape architecture is the art and science of the possible. Which of those, uh, other than invisible mending, really stand out for you? Uh, the wilding uh, principles is one that um, that she was so proud of. And uh, I remember over the course of our exhibition prep, because I am in Vancouver, I was able to go and visit her at least pre-COVID quite regularly uh, to talk about the project. And she would love, um, and I think Amory, she did this with you when she came, when you came to visit her too. She took us outside and showed us how um, she had had basically let wilding take course in her own garden. And for her, this was a really important principle because uh, it sort of spoke to her natural inclination to keep a landscape as untouched as possible. Uh, wilding was very important to her. Uh, and that, that is essentially when you, you just let nature take its course. Uh, so it's when you let the birds through their poop, drop seeds on the ground and you let those seeds grow. The grading part of each project for her was, was extremely important because she wanted these landscapes to, that she was designing to be successful. And for her, that meant that the below groundwork had to be done before the above groundwork could be done. And a really good example of that is looking at the plans that exist for the National Gallery uh, of Canada project. That was another project that she worked on with Moshe Safdie. We actually have um, some examples of some below ground plans in our exhibition um, that she was involved with. The different below ground elements was an extremely important part of the project. Amory, what's that mean, the below ground elements? Well, there's the uh, granite, there's the um, water systems, the, how, how the uh, sprinklers and, and water maintenance uh, systems will be placed. Um, 
So you see that in, in the plans. You see that actually in the uh, National Gallery, there's an irrigation plan, I believe, that you can see the, the, great, the below ground. In what ways are her influences being felt now? Um, it's a really interesting time to be thinking about landscape architecture. And that's um, as we think about uh, climate change and a loss of connection to the environment, um, landscape architecture is a possible way forward where we can start to reconnect with the land, the land and the environment in a different way. And so I think just in general of the, the actual practice of landscape architecture, it's a really interesting time to, to be very impactful. Cornelia was a very deep researcher. You see it in the archives when you see her projects, the East Three School that we've been talking about. There are boxes and boxes of research that include articles about climate change, a postcard from the, from the neighborhood store. There's all, it's, it's just a broad, broad range of research. And I think it's interesting to think about landscape in this bigger picture. I talked about earlier how she saw the, the client as not just the paying client, but the community itself. And I think now when we think about landscape architecture, it's hard not to look at her work and feel that it's a generous nod to thinking about what is the responsibility of architecture and design in this field today? And I, I did have a, a conversation with her just before um, her passing actually about what did she want to see as the legacy of, of her work. And I asked her what young landscape architects should think about today, because I think that's something that she's always been a leader in bringing more women into the practice. She's always spoken at schools and at graduations and talking about the responsibility of thinking about treating the earth with respect. And she said, landscape architects should treat the, uh, the earth as if every day is Earth Day and to think about biology and ecology as um, study those two disciplines. So again, really broadening out this idea of landscape architecture is more than a drawing or even a grading, but it's really thinking about the full natural system. And she said, that's her advice. Amory, what will we see in the show at the Architecture Gallery at the University of Manitoba? We're going to see a sampling of the full groups. There are four groups uh, that Hillary and I have both collected for the exhibition. Um, playgrounds and social housing are the two that I curated, and Hillary curated the public projects and the private residences. Cornelia's grandmother in uh, 1938 wrote a letter that she kind of popped in her pocket as she was crossing the, the um, sea. And uh, it was basically uh, saying to her a little bit of advice. And Cornelia has referenced this a uh, couple of times. And then when I was speaking to her, she also um, said it's something that she cherishes to the, you know, to the, to the day when I spoke to her last. But um, that's, that you have to bring beauty to everything. Uh, the new forms that you will give the land, do it with your whole heart. And the last sentence is really poignant when thinking about future generations. Whatever you do in your work will be the seed of the next generation. Hillary, one of the focuses of the work that you did in the catalog was on the private residences that Cornelia did. What was significant about them? We were able to include three different examples of private residence designs that she did uh, in our exhibition. And the 
first project is from 1953 and it's the Friedlander House here in Vancouver. And this was one of the very first projects that she undertook when she moved to Vancouver in 1953. She and Peter had just recently married uh, and he was working uh, at UBC uh, setting up the urban planning department there. And she uh, was, was looking to take on work uh, as a landscape designer. And so she worked with Fred Lasserre, who was uh, head of the architecture department at UBC. And he'd just been commissioned to design a modern home uh, for two doctors who had just moved from Montreal. And so she took up the, uh, the work to be the landscape designer on this project. And this was one of her uh, projects of which she was most proud. It was the first project she did in Vancouver. It was the first modern garden in Vancouver is how she liked to classify it. And it was a very simple low maintenance garden uh, that the Friedlanders enjoyed for a number of decades up until their passing. And uh, so this, this modern garden for a modern house was, was very important to her as a project. Uh, but I think with all of her private residence commissions that she did, it was very interesting to see how she was always working to take whatever the commissioners, whatever the client's needs were uh, to incorporate. And, and I think the private residences were a slightly different type of project for her from the, the larger scale public projects and from the playground projects uh, and even the social housing projects because she was working with commissioners who had a very specific set of ideas as to what they wanted. And you can see that not only in the Friedman residence where they wanted a, a low maintenance garden, uh, but also in the Rotman residence in Toronto. This is a project that she undertook uh, in the 90s. And for them, uh, they wanted a modern English garden to match their Neo-Georgian house. And so she incorporated the, the desires and the needs of, of the family, but also of course brought her own uh, design ideas to the project as well. And so with the private residences, we really see this interesting molding of, of needs and, and desires coming together. Um, there is one video in the exhibition that I haven't talked about that I could talk about briefly. And we talked, we started the interview with the idea of um, them coming over, you know, coming over after Crystal Knot and, and coming to North America. 50 years later, Cornelia actually went with her daughter back to Germany for the first time. Wendy, her, her daughter, had created a video about this experience. There's comments about the coming back to a sense of place, it's a bit narrative, and it's also a bit of an exploration in what was it like then, what is it like now, and, and rediscovering memories. But what I found really compelling about this video is also how it takes landscape and it's, it's un, it unflattens landscape. It's, you start to understand how landscape is part of memory. It's part of emotion. It's part of the way humans connect to each other. And that's very prevalent in that video. And so um, I'll leave it with that. Well, thank you, Amory Calvelli. And thank you, Dr. Hilary Lettman, for joining us on Prairie Design Lab today. I really look forward to seeing the show. It's coming to Winnipeg in November. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules today to talk to us. Thanks for your interest. Thank Alrighty. you. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Bye, Terry. Bye, Amory. Amory Calvelli is an adjunct curator at the Pool Center of Design at the Art Gallery of Alberta. She was in Calgary. Dr. Hilary Letwin is the assistant curator at the West Vancouver Art Museum. She was in West Vancouver.
I want to say a special thanks to our supporting team from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba, Jason Chan, Jason Shields, and Brandy O'Reilly. You can listen to us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. If you like us, please subscribe. You can also hear us on the radio in southern Manitoba on UMFM at 101.5 FM on Wednesday mornings at 11.30. I'm Terry McLeod. Thanks for listening to Prairie Design Lab. Talk to you next week.